For June 25th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 521. Did you open the door? Did you get on the floor? Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier when we're hanging out talking about the latest movie, except sometimes we don't want to talk about the latest movie. We just want to talk about things that are awesome. The latest movie may or may not be awesome, but you know what is awesome? Dinosaurs. So uh, instead of actually seeing the uh, Jurassic World 2, Jurassic Galaxy, Jurassic, Jurassic World, Fallen yeah. Kingdom. Yes. Fallen. Okay. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's about it's about a Cromwell dinosaur that overthrows a uh, an old fashioned dinosaur that wears lots of ruffs and lace and furs and replaces it with a bunch of dinosaurs that wear clean uh, and crisp black hats. Right. So. And you have to paint that dinosaur warts and all. Cromwellius Rex. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know. We couldn't, we couldn't get together the energy to go see another summer movie, but, but, you know, dinosaurs are awesome. Uh, and so we're going to talk about dinosaurs a little bit. I'm Matt Rather and with me are our uh, paleontologist experts, Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hi, Hi Matt. <laughs> and Mark Lee. Hey, Mark. Hello, Matthew. All right. Before uh, so so we're going to be joined by a special guest in just a second, um, but uh, to talk a little bit about the science before we get to the uh, the you know deeper metaphorical meanings of dinosaurs and our our you know why why this symbol and and metaphor because that's all dinosaurs are is a symbol and a metaphor. Um, the, both neither the overlapping venn diagram of of those two things uh before uh before we get to that we're going to talk uh with a special guest and and before we even get to that let's just open this conversation by all saying our favorite dinosaur pete do you have a a, a favorite of all the dinosaurs Oh man. Uh, yeah. I mean, sorry, I put that, I put you on the spot with that one. Well, it's tricky. I got, I got, because when I go first, I like to say something that isn't going to take away somebody else's because that's why so many of my old questions of the week, I pick something really obscure or I interpret the question in a weird way. But for this, I mean, I gotta say a triceratops, right? Yeah. So this is barring of course the 2012 controversy wherein it was uh, posited that Triceratops and Taurosaurus were different maturity uh, periods of the same creature. And this was uh, this was uh, interpreted by news headlines as being that Triceratops ceased to exist, which made a lot of people very unhappy because people were still mad about Pluto not being a planet. But uh, in retrospect, Triceratops is <laughs> or, or, or white male privilege being, you know, increasingly interrogated and called into question in society. It's all part and parcel of the, the same upheavals. <laughs> in 2012, has it really been going on that long? All these different things. Uh, yeah. So, well, I, just, I would posit that this is a little bit different. This is not just about people being resistant to change. This is about people, you know, being told that a, uh, a schema that they think of as kind of a fond uh, kind of personal learning is now wrong, right? I guess you could refer to that as I would never, I would not necessarily refer to like structural modes of of ethnic and and cultural like integration or failure to integration or like 
uh, oppression and whatnot as like that kind of like, ooh, that's a nice, that's a nice little system. I really I get pleasure out of the fact that the system like works the way it does. I don't think of it that way, but yeah, I guess you could. I guess you could. But there's a certain beauty to the triceratops, I think, with the 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 tri, the three horns, its sort of squat and strong demeanor, the idea that it was an herbivore that could fight back against carnivores, uh, all sorts of good stuff going on with the triceratops. Awesome. Mark, do you have a favorite? I'm going to go basic and basically say the brontosaurus, right? Yeah. Like, I'm just a big fan of vastness scale. Uh, I believe I could be wrong. Well, actually, if you know better than me, but I, I believe at least that class of animal was the largest anything to ever, ever walk the earth. Um, and that's a hell of an achievement. Um, and you know, like that isn't that good enough reason to fantasize about bringing dinosaurs back in a park of Jurassic quality, right? Is to uh, be dwarfed by the majesty of such a huge creature. Um, I would be super into that. So um, I like big things. Um, I'd want to ride on top of a brontosaurus and uh, ride that neck and get uh, get a nice view. Um, what's wrong with that? If that's wrong, I don't want to be right. Fred Fred Flintstone style, slide down it and do a do a leap into your into your uh, caveman car, right? Yes, when the lunch whistle blows, because I have union protections in prehistoric uh, society. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the unions were stronger. Yeah, back then. yeah, they were back then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my favorite dinosaur is the labor movement. No, I'm kidding. Oh, oh. Uh, my favorite dinosaur, uh, probably Carl Reiner. That guy made some really funny stuff. Okay, I just, uh, I just, uh, you know, was joking before about dinosaurs being only metaphorical, only child's toys, only there in in films to teach us about who we are, so that Chris Pratt can grow up again, again, again. But uh, in fact, they were actual things that existed on the Earth once, and so who better to talk about that with than a real scientist? And we've got a great one. It's our friend Dave Schechner who joins us now. Dave holds degrees in in uh, molecular biology and or biochemistry from Yale and the Massachusetts <laughs> Institute of Technology. Uh, after a, a brief stint at Harvard, he is now assistant professor of pharmacology at the University of Washington. He's also our good friend, and we've seen him do many. Many embarrassing things in college. Dave, welcome to overthinking oh, yeah. it. And, and that's that's without looking at my professional record too, which is, which is rife with yet more. <laughs> it's great. It's great to have you. I oh I I sorry I do you a disservice, Dave. Dave, you're also responsible for two of the most popular articles uh, ever on the site. One is the fridge nuking arca- article where you oh, subjected yeah. the uh, the fridge nuking uh, incident in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull to rigorous uh, <laughs> to anonymous academic, yeah to, to peer review. Yeah, yeah. Peer, peer review. <laughs> I, the I other, had to actually review a paper recently and was just far more gentle on it than I was on Indy 4, as was deserved, <laughs> I think. So. Yeah, probably deserved. The other, the other is the Back to the Future article where you point out that when oh, yeah. uh, when the DeLorean jumps from time to time, it, it actually also has to travel in space because the Earth would be in a different location or would be at a different point in its rotation. Yeah, uh, and, and I, I didn't even take into account like the, uh, the rotation of our arm of the Milky Way or the general expansion of the universe, too. I mean, my calculations are way off. <laughs> You're not thinking fourth dimensionally, Dave. Well, good. We're 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 very glad to have you to talk about about Jurassic Park, Dave. Just to start the conversation off, would it be fair to say that Jurassic Park is the movie that made you the scientist that you are today? I'm I'm embarrassed to say, uh, in a certain regard, but yeah, absolutely. Like, like Jurassic Park, I was sitting in the movie theater. 
and it was, I want to say it was the summer either before or after I took high school biology. I think it was the summer after because I had some technical knowledge about what was going on. And I thought, you know what? That looks pretty awesome. And then it's like my mind just kind of tuned out for all the moral implications of the whole thing, <laughs> let, let alone like the logistical problems of being eaten by a T-Rex. Uh, but, but I was like, yeah, you know what? Mucking around with biomolecules sounds like a great idea. Wait, what are that, the logistical problems of being eaten by a T-Rex? It seems pretty straightforward to me. Like, it's not like there's a elaborate Gantt chart with a project plan for getting eaten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's really, it's dealing with uh, the T-Rex system management system. That's going to be, um, you know, it's really going to come back to bite you. Uh, maybe the human body is so small, like the and the T Rex teeth are so big, it makes like just like chewing and breaking apart a human uh, a little bit difficult. Yeah, you're going to be swallowed mostly whole, I imagine, right? So yeah. you, you've you got really a couple of minutes. Flavor, in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, when did you, dinosaurs you, have gizzards, or did they digest like uh, much in the manner that we do, with like acid in their stomach or something? Oh, that's a really good question. No one I yeah, don't know the answer to. I mean, no, I think, no one knows. It's it's impossible. Uh, you know, as with global <laughs> warming, the scientific consensus is not firmly established. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when when they all died uh, because they couldn't fit onto the ark, uh, I think a lot of that information got lost. <laughs> well, <laughs> fair, fair as, is, as is the current administration's NSF-approved uh, description of what happened. Um, yeah. So. Uh, I mean, so first of all, the dinosaurs are a very heterogeneous bunch, and I'm, I'm speaking way outside my, my professional and technical expertise here. So we're venturing away from um, my training as a molecular biologist and more as my training uh, as a father who reads things to my six-year-old and three-year-old. Um, but but you've got, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, creatures that lived over uh, hundreds of millions of years and at least three geological epochs. Um, you know, many of which are kind of intermingling in these movies and in books and sort of in popular culture, but would have actually like never encountered one another within Earth's history. So I, my suspicion is there's probably quite a lot of diversity in terms of body plan and, and hence like elementary canal construction. <laughs> um, but at least like the ones that are the immediate ancestors to modern day birds, I imagine probably, you know, do it gizzard style. Gizzard style. <laughs> do it, do yeah. it gizzard style. <laughs> yeah, they and, do. I think I mean they they do have there have been some fossils unearthed right where you've got dinosaur skeletons with smaller dinosaur skeletons kind of merged and they're clearly things that they have just ingested right um, like you know you're having lunch you get blown over by a lava flow uh, or something that wouldn't destroy your body you get you sucked into a, a mud pit. Uh, and then the low pH preserves enough of you for ossification, and then you and your lunch get preserved in time. You, you drop your uh, new delicious dinosaur turducken into a little brea tar pits. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that is the ultimate low and slow cooking. Yeah. <laughs> guy, guy Fieri would be proud of this. Hey, hey, Dave, I want to get back to you know Jurassic Park inspiring you and your career yeah, of yeah. amazing actual science. Um, because uh, if the sequence of events is as I imagine it, it's like you're blown away by the potential for science and, uh, and for lack of a better word, like it's magical quality, uh, in something yeah. like Jurassic park. Right. And you're in awe of its capability. And then at some point along the way, you run into the, uh, the less glamorous reality of like running a bunch of experiments over and over again and having them fail and not producing <laughs> and, and, and not producing amazing dinosaurs in the process. Um, but eventually yeah, getting yeah. something that works and then you produce an amazing publication instead of a dinosaur. Right. Like, <laughs> which, tell, is, tell which me, is actually, 
which, which is the topic of my favorite thing I've ever done for overthinking it, but is, is vastly undersighted, right? I did a, a one-page webcomic about Back to the Future. Right. Where, where <laughs> uh, um, uh, Marty and Doc have just proven that they can make a time travel machine. And at that point, it goes from the movie to what it would really be like in the sciences, which is, well, okay, the next thing we'd have to do is collect a whole bunch of statistics and devise some control experiments and then submit it for peer review in a publication so that we could then solicit right. more grant funding. And, 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 and hope your peers can reproduce it and so on and so forth. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But but not before you actually get to publication because then you've been scooped. Um, yeah. So, I mean, th- that, that honestly is at the core of basically all of molecular biology, if not all of the sciences, too, is that, you know, in our profession... And it's, it's certainly not alone in this regard. Uh, I think there are you know, people in the arts probably have a very similar process, too, where you have this big disconnect between the kind of overarching picture of what you're trying to do in your career um, versus the actual aesthetic of the day-to-day that you're involved in. Um, and, and, and I think at a certain abstract level, this is where most people who um, start off in academic science or, or at, like, benchside science and who then leave it, this is where they end up leaving it, is that they can't marry the two to one another. Um, actually, I, I, have a, I have a cousin who is a very talented chemist, got her PhD in chemistry from, from Scripps, which is one of the best institutes in the nation. And she ended up going into venture capital uh, midway through her postdoc because she, she said, like, I would find myself at the bench fantasizing about being a ditch digger <laughs> because, <laughs> because if you're a ditch digger you know you get up in the morning you go to work there are there are a certain number of ditches in the world <laughs> and then at the end of the day there are more ditches in the world and you can point to that and be like clearly i have done a thing today <laughs> whereas in science that's just like not always in fact most of the time that's not true most days you go back home having absolutely nothing to show for um for what you've been doing with your life um so i I think it's the people who can bite the bullet and deal with that who end up um you know being happy with their careers i don't know about successful but certainly happy so you list professional bullet biters on your resume then right exactly that's absolutely right congratulations dave you have bitten the bullets you've made it that's right (laughs) it's it's really coping with the tedium that really makes a well really it's anything like you know every career is the i feel like you could say that about every career the the level of the day-to-day bs versus the uh overarching like um grand goals or like vision yeah, of a better yeah. world that you're that, that you're trying to be uh, about it's the particular it's the particular terroir of the bs that you, <laughs> you know, that, that determines what in particular you want to go with terroir from the deep I, I prefer i prefer to think about it in the context of the arts but i think this might work for science too as the, part of an immutable law of the universe the law being the second law of thermodynamics Meaning yeah. that in order to create some sort of achievement, in quotes, which you might think of some sort of uh, thing with a profound organization of one sort or another, you need to burn a lot of entropy. Right? Yeah. You need to like burn through a lot of and en- you have to do a lot of little sorts of expenditures to come up with something really, really organized and beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you, you got it. The, the heat death of the universe uh, is going to get his payment one way or another. So. Yeah, and it might be like the ten different drafts you have to write before you finish. You know your. Uh, yeah your poem about uh the crow or it might be the you know 
hundred different crystallography experiments you have to run before oh, God, you I, I wish, one compound. I wish it had been a hundred. <laughs> I wish my PhD had been a hundred experiments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I wish it had been a hundred poems about the crow. I think it would have been really entertaining. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> the, the but parallel I always draw is, is with yeah. the arts, too, because I, I feel like, um, and this this is probably uh, colored by my own personal bias, but, but people who become professional artists and people who become professional scientists, I feel like um, it's hard to fall into those professions. It's often it's often that you're extremely passionate about something, and something that you're like emotionally connected to at a very deep level, and um, and so you decide to sort of make this your life's work. And there's you know the hope that it becomes sort of a sustainable profession for you, but it's it's at a certain level you know you kind of giving yourself up in service to it, you know, and and so you know there's this thing that you loved. And you have to turn that into a job, <laughs> and 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 you know therein lies the sort of like personal paradox that a lot of us end up having to deal with, right? If you're really awesome at the French horn, you love playing the French horn, and you want to become a professional French horn player, you're gonna have to deal with the fact that like you have to do this for eight hours at least every day, and you have to have not total control over the sort of music that you want to play, and yada yada, yada. you know, all the stuff that comes with you know having a job, right? I can't it, only it, play literally, the, the, I can't only play the mournful. From Jurassic Park, just over and over again, because that that's, just that's, 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 that's your job for six months. Yeah, that's, you know, but, we, can't, but, we can't all get to go. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is this is uh, all contrary to fact, however, because literally no one is good at the French horn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah wh- where's Polinky? Why is he? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. I, w- I was going to go with a different joke, which was the kissing was so so, but I loved the way he held me. Uh, <laughs> so d- is so. David, how 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 full of speaking as about BS or or DS if we're talking about dinosaurs uh, or, or you um, or me, yeah, for that matter. What uh, uh how full of s is uh is Jurassic Park right? Like, can can I yep. make a dinosaur by pulling blood out of a mosquito? Mosquito that mosquito is <laughs> that's what they call mosquitoes in the real America. Mosquito in Ermber. Uh, can, I, can I do that? And can I can I in, inject, uh, perhaps using CRISPR or some related technology, uh, frog DNA, so that uh, they switch genders and and things like that? Let's just go deep down the rabbit hole, and yeah. uh, you can call balls and strikes as we, uh, as, you know, as we fall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, in theory, it should be conceivably possible that under certain circumstances, one might be able to get. Um, DNA from 60 million years ago. And and then, yeah, maybe sort of like through an extensive series of piggybacks, get that DNA into a living organism. But the thing is, the the numbers are are way stacked against you. <laughs> so, so first off, you've got uh, what Pete brought up before, which is the second law of thermodynamics, right? So what you have is a, is a, is a piece of genomic DNA, and you know, any respectable organism of that size, you're going to be talking about billions of letters of DNA, and not all of them are necessary for you to make that organism. So let's just say you're trying to make a T-Rex, right? 
let's comfortably say you need about three or four billion letters worth of DNA. Hey, hey Dan, before make you go on, can you, can you explain what a letter of DNA is? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, so so DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, uh, it's the long-term storage, uh, information storage molecule that's used in the vast majority of organisms currently on Earth. The only real exceptions being uh, certain subclades of viruses that use RNA, which is chemically related and is my favorite molecule. Um, but, but basically everything else on Earth uses uh, this molecule DNA um, to store all of its information. And DNA is a polymer, so it's, you can think of it as you know, um, individual units that are just linked up one after another, after another, after another, sort of like beads on a string. And it turns out that DNA is made out, at least in every organism from, say, about four and a half billion years ago, four and a four billion years ago or ago to now, um, their DNA is a mixture of four different letters. Uh, so that's you know A, T, C, and G. So adenine, thymidine, uh, cytosine, and guanosine. And um, and it turns out that you know the way that evolution has selected the the transfer of information from the storage and DNA into all the other things that cells do um, uses this uniform genetic code that takes combinations of these letters and then through an elaborate process of reading it and transmitting that information then ultimately produces other functional molecules from that DNA. So it sort of opens up the DNA, has mechanisms to read the sequence of letters in it, produces RNA molecules. Many of those RNAs are functional on their own and do their own interesting things. That's actually what I work on. Some of those RNA molecules then get read by different machineries and are used to make proteins, which are also, many of them are functional on their own. And then other, many of those proteins are also enzymes, which are machines that can um, perform chemical reactions. So all the other stuff that isn't made out of big molecules, but it's made of small molecules, things like turning your food into simple building blocks that can then be absorbed by cells. Um, most of that is the work of proteins too. So, so your, your DNA is the ultimate storage house of that information and then machinery that the DNA itself also encodes. Um, is used to read that DNA and then turn into all the other things that happen inside a cell and inside an organism and so forth. So in theory, if, if you know, um, this is why people talk about DNA as being the blueprint of life. In theory, if you had just the sequence of information of an organism's DNA um, with a deep enough understanding of molecular biology, uh, you would be able to just take that information and reproduce the organism from it. And, and in a sense, this is what happens in embryonic uh, development, right? You know, sperm meets egg, and combined the the DNA that's that's there in this now fertilized zygote, when incubated in the right environment of the womb, you know, in the case of um, mammals, um, that's sufficient to then develop into a new fully functional organism. So. So you could imagine if you had a, an intact copy of the DNA from a T-Rex, um, either being able to produce the sequence of that, that uh, using modern sequencing techniques. So the sequencing is just literally reading out the sequence of these four bases, you know, A-A-T-C-C-A-A-C-G-A-A-A, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then using modern chemical techniques, then just assembling that sequence yourself de novo and somehow getting that into a fertilized uh, zygote. Uh, and then using this to build your own T-Rex. Or you can kind of bootstrap it the way they describe in the movie, which is taking chunks of your T-Rex DNA um, and then kind of assembling it into a backbone that you know could be supported 
um, in a developing embryo on its own, basically kind of bootstrapping off the back of like a frog and then a gecko and a lizard, yada, yada, yada. I should say there's legitimate talk in some circles about trying to do exactly this experiment with mammoth DNA, uh, essentially trying to resurrect the woolly mammoth in the womb of a currently living elephant. They're close enough related that trying to get a mammoth to grow, again, trying to get a mammoth embryo to grow in an elephant womb would be kind of similar to trying to get um, like a mule embryo to grow inside a horse womb, which is something that humans have been doing for, for millennia. So, um, so in theory, okay, so everybody's still with me? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, okay, but, but, but Dave, <laughs> you, you keep saying, Dave, in theory, in theory, in theory, and literally yes. no one has made the, the, the joke from The Simpsons. Which which is, well, in theory, communism works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I always thought that was Blinky's joke. No, Blinky, Blinky yanked that joke from The Simpsons. <laughs> well, I'm glad he's not on this podcast. I have words for Monsieur Blinky. You'd have, you'd have harsh words. <laughs> um, yeah, words so okay, up um, of letters, but not like letters of not like letters of DNA. All right, so I have a mosquito. So, Dave, I have a mosquito okay. and a chicken egg. Can I make a dinosaur? Yeah, no, probably not. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why not. <laughs> what's so, what's so, the best reason? What's the awesomest reason that you can't make a dinosaur? <laughs> okay, so so the <laughs> like oh, the, first, the reasons you, decreasing order of awesomeness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God Himself forbids tinkering with the. Um, so, did you open the door and did you get on the floor? Um, if not, then you cannot. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, okay. My, my favorite physical law is the second is the second law of thermodynamics, uh, which Pete, Pete brought up before. And that basically is so the second law as Pete, uh, well formulated is that, you know, for any spontaneous reaction, anything that just goes without you having to, to push it in any way, um, at the end of that reaction, there's just less usable energy in the universe than there was beforehand. You had a certain amount of stuff that was good to do stuff with, and then when you're done, it's all descended into chaos and disorder and, and, and entropy. And this, this, you know, as people are fond of saying outside the sciences, means that order leads to chaos. And what this means for our T-Rex resurrection experiment means that um, just the chemical integrity of your DNA over 60, oh, is it 60 a million years, right? 60 million years um, is is almost certainly not going to survive it. Even, even in the best preserved conditions, there's just going to be a barrage of chemical attacks that happen on that DNA that's not going to allow it to survive in kind of a readable sense. Oh my so, God. You know, so I got I to gotta call the Walt Disney Corporation. <laughs> you know, he's... <laughs> I mean, but that, that, I mean, and that's the thing is that that when you know people got this, I should say, okay, when when DNA sequencing got um, really powerful, which is you know around the turn of the 21st century, um, and there have been huge, huge leaps in the quality of DNA that we're able to work with. In, in other words, like really badly degraded DNA is now tractable in a way that that it wasn't before, um, and 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 the speed and the accuracy with which we're able to extract information out of that DNA has gone through just exponential increases over the last you know 15 years but but you know big leaps were made around the turn of the 21st century and at that point there were you know big headline papers where people claimed to have sequenced um i think like the actin protein you know the, the corresponding gene for the actin protein from tyrannosaurus rex um they would just go down to the smithsonian you know drill a core into the femur that they've got there 
extract some DNA from that, get some sequence from it. The sequence looked really lousy. But then they could kind of squint at it and say, like, oh, here's the actin. And, hey, it looks kind of like a turkey's actin, something like that. Actin is this protein that's um, used to help cells form their shapes, amongst a whole bunch of other things. Okay, so, um, and all that ended up being completely artifact. It was totally bogus. Um, and and this um, comes from two reasons. You know, one, there was just no way in hell any DNA survived inside that femur. Um, that thing had long ago turned into rock. And two, <clears throat> is that people, even scientists, have a really hard time conceptualizing exactly how long 60 million years is. Like, that is a long time. <laughs> and, and I want you to sort of, like, walk through this thought experiment with me. So, like, imagine a T-Rex, you know, dies and sort of, like, falls down on the ground, right? And you get this rotting carcass there. And the moment, I mean, at the moment that it died, its skin was covered in trillions upon trillions of bacteria. And all those bacteria have DNA in them. And then, and then he, you know, that that harp, he or she, okay, it, it could be it could be a lady Tyrannosaurus. Um, he or she dies, and then the body decays, and then you know, wind blows over that, that brings more bacteria, and eventually maybe some dirt falls on that. That's more bacteria. You know, if you do the thought experiment, where you just think about like an apparently lifeless bit of field somewhere, you know, just out in the woods. That lifeless bit of field is actually covered in in a plethora of living stuff, right? The grass, the tumbleweeds, the pollen, the, the bacteria, the worms, the bugs, and all of this stuff has DNA in it. And because because as DNA, we know, Dave, as we know, life is DNA. Will, <laughs> well, like, or, we were looking for a will find a way, but uh, eh, very, well, <laughs> I, I'm trying to avoid copyright, damn it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so, so literally everything that has ever crawled over that surface of land that's housing your T-Rex uh, carcass has DNA in it, and some of that stuff is going to die or otherwise deposit its DNA on top of it. So you have, you know, this is a problem with crime scenes, right? If there's been a murder last week and they go to collect DNA, there's just other DNA sitting around there that's accumulated on top of it. Now this is, you know... Uh, 60 million times times 50 <laughs> uh, fold uh, amplification of it. So, so the sample you actually want to get for one is is badly degraded. Um, you would need to basically encase it within the heart of a diamond, freeze it to almost absolute zero, and bury it. Um, you know where no light could penetrate it in order for the DNA itself to survive. But then on top of it, in the process of extracting that DNA, you have to dig through all of the other DNA that's been deposited on top of it, including all the stuff that's like slothing off your skin um, while you're doing the process. So the odds of you actually being able to get that, that minuscule dwindling sample from the morass of background noise is, is really, really low. So and, is oh, another okay, way of thinking of this that like, the DNA is locked in a vault that's far below Cartier's jewelry shop, and Ocean's sixty-five trillion is staging a heist. <laughs> that's <laughs> that is lasting, right. yeah, over the course of, of many, 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 many millennia, the, yeah. the the crack team of heisters, biological heisters, <laughs> are doing everything that they can to get into that vault. Uh, yeah. and, uh, okay, okay, I got it. Uh, I mean, that's, that's they can the twist and turn across the laser beams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if we're fundamentally so, so, talking um, about the corruption of DNA over time, right, we talked about how difficult it is for 
a 65 million year old uh, Tyrannosaurus DNA. But the the mammoth thing, uh, not to take us too far away from dinosaurs, which is our main topic. Yeah. Uh, but if, if I understand correctly, right, that corruption, but uh, there's not nearly that degree of corruption. A because of the time, and B because of how they're preserved, like uh, like biological specimens exactly. in ice. Is that right? Well, it's it, it's it's how it's yeah. You you basically hit the nail on the head. So because uh, because it's much more recent. So we're talking now about ten to hundred thousand years, as opposed to sixty million years. And sixty million years at the earliest, right? That's when the last dinosaurs died off. Um, so um, so so it's much less time has passed, which means the integrity of the initial sample is still workable. And even then, you have, I should say that a lot of this information comes from some uh, interactions I had with a person who actually works in this field. There's a, a scientist named Svante Pavo, who I've never actually met, but I spoke with one of his postdocs about this, um, who's done amazing work on Neanderthal genome sequencing. And the Neanderthals, um, embarrassed to say, I don't remember exactly when they died off last, but I want to say it's about 10,000 years ago or so, maybe maybe a little bit longer. And and so so there, you know, it's a much easier problem. You also have better preserved specimens, or similar to what you're dealing with with um, with mammoths. Um, but even there, the the chemical decay from the DNA becomes uh, a massive problem, um, where they have to go through a bunch of different manipulations to get very short, fragmented uh, chunks of information from a genome that's essentially the size of human genome as well. And they, they went through Herculean efforts basically at every stage of the process. So, so if you want to get your sequence, uh, your, your, your genome sequenced right now, you, you get an, a blob of your, um, your cell tissue, you isolate DNA from it, you run it into a sequencer, you basically run it through a couple of different enzymatic manipulations, and then you throw it on a sequencing machine, and then out pops the data. And basically every one of those steps that I described, they had to go through these incredible contortions to be able to pull off. So, you know, you get a femur from a Neanderthal, and the first thing you have to do basically is blast that femur in ultra-high UV light under a vacuum to try and etch off any bacterial DNA that that might have, that almost certainly has kind of um, uh, just embedded itself in the outer inch of stuff that's on there. And then, you know, working in a vacuum glove box, also under scorching UV light, you have to take a very careful core sample. And, and that's the sort of Neanderthal equivalent to, you know, you spitting in a cup to get your DNA sequence. And then the equivalent to doing the enzymatic manipulations to make the library, to, to make the sort of sequencing um, sample that you use to read off the information is a whole bunch of enzymology that I don't really remember the details of and which you guys would all be bored to tears by. But it basically says that, like, you, know, you could be expected to drop your DNA into this machine and get um, at least 100 million chunks of sequence out that are each about 200 bases long, each 200 letters long. So 200 letters times 100 billion means that you've looked at all of the bases in your genome several times over. And for them they could probably get maybe a million of those little chunks, um, and they're probably going to get 30 or 40 bases per chunk instead of 250 or so. So, And then even after that, they computationally have to sort of squint a whole bunch to try and figure out, you know, places where there are ambiguities to it. And, And this is entirely ascribed to the whole chemical decay problem, the second law of thermodynamics. So with mammoths, it's a little bit easier because you, sometimes you get a whole damn mammoth, right? Like the thing just fell through the ice, 
got uh, Captain Caveman style or, or, or uh, <laughs> unfrozen caveman lawyer style encased <laughs> in a giant cube of ice. And then you have the whole mammal. So, so you know, at least you don't have to try and get like a tiny core sample out of a femur that somebody discovered in a cave in France. You, you could just ground up, you know, 20 or 30 pounds of mammoth and get the sample out of it. Um, so, so even in those cases where the chemical decay has caused stuff to kind of get corroded, like it's relatively easy to, to get some more sample and throw it in there and, and use that to kind of stitch together the information that you need. Okay, I get um, it. I get it. This is very hard. Yeah. So It's uh, super hard, yeah. So, so, so wait, is the turkey DNA inside the dinosaur femur actually more likely to be actual turkey DNA that has somehow yeah. made its way down into the inside of this bone than it is yeah, dinosaur no, that, DNA? That's exactly it. Yeah, when they, when, they were, when they thought they were sequencing uh, T-Rex and they actually you know, thought that they were getting some turkey, or, or they sequenced what they thought was T-Rex and they said, hey, it looks like turkey. I think what it really was was you know, bits of corroded human DNA that had somehow made it through, maybe some bits of somebody's lunch that kind of went through. And then, you know, they, they were really kind of pushing the envelope to say that it looked like turkey even in the first place. But it, de- it definitely I feel, looked I feel more that like, way sometimes at like the wrong kind of cafeteria. Oh, yeah, yeah like, absolutely. They're, they're really stretching their luck on this one. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So, so speaking of modern-day edible fowl, um, I, I understand <laughs> that some of the, uh, the cutting edge for genetic engineering, like trying to create a dinosaur, is to take a chicken mm-hmm. and to like mm-hmm. edit the hell out of its DNA so that you kind of work backwards from an actual already living organism and then like turn it into a dinosaur. Is that like, yeah, so an that, accurate that actually, summary of the, another method? So that and and this is I mean strangely enough um, for making dinosaurs I think might even be the more um, trying to choose my adjective carefully that's going to say the more profitable way to do it and, and there I mean like the more productive endeavor if if the outcome you want is to produce a thing that people look at and go hey that's a dinosaur um, yeah we're we're but this okay so mechanistically speaking you know a person goes to the bench. Does he or she have the tools available to manipulate a genome in this way so as to produce a variant of the existing gene that he or she designs? That is now essentially a very easy process. In other words, I have a sequence, and I want to turn it into this other sequence on a sort of small scale. Take a single gene, turn it into another gene that's very similar. Um, I've got the human gene, I want to make it the monkey gene. Or I've got the diseased human gene, and I want to turn it into the healthy human gene. Um, That is now extremely easy. Um, It's still not so robust and thorough that we're talking about, like, correcting people's diseased genes in adult humans. But, you know, I imagine within our lifetimes we'll actually see that capability. So, um, I mean, maybe, honestly, within the next 20 years, we'll see that capability. It's, it's, and, and, of course, the major driving force behind this is um, this series of this clades of bacterial immune defense uh, genes that are collectively called CRISPR, um, which is also something that, that I work on and work with. So, so, you know, this was science fiction when, I, when, when we were all in college together, the idea that you could relatively simply just go in and manipulate a genome um, any which way you saw fit. Um, but now we're uh, within striking distance of being at that point. And so in, in theory, the actual, like, mecha- you know, it, it's, um, it's sort of like having the engine to a car without actually understanding how a car should work. So on the one hand, if you knew what the sequence of DNA you were trying to shoot for was to turn a chicken's genome into a T-Rex chicken, a T-Rex genome. A T-Rex, T-Rex chicken. chicken. 
<laughs> That's my new band name, everybody. <laughs> That's copyright 2018 Schechner. So, 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 you know, if you knew what you were shooting for, if you had the chicken genome and you wanted to turn it into a T-Rex genome, um, the technology is is basically online to do that. And within 10 years, we'll be able to do that. The problem is we still don't know what the end point of that is. So we have the chicken genome and we know what a T-Rex should look like, but there's still this like basic problem in molecular biology where you can't just stare at a sequence of a genome and predict how what, what sort of organism that's going to turn into. Um, certainly with not like the degree of precision where we could say, oh, well, this is going to make a beak this shaped or this is going to make something have... Um, you know, scales of this thickness and that are stellated in this pattern, you know. We, we can look at a genome and be like, oh, well, you know, that's a chicken, that's a turkey. Um, or, you know, even, you know, this is a person, this is a human being of, of largely European descent, whereas this is a person of, um, you know, North African descent, something like that. Um, but the, the kind of precision that we would need to say, oh, well, how are we going to get the claws to be angled at a 60-degree arc instead of a 52-degree arc? Um, that is currently beyond um, our understanding. So, so in theory, like the mechanics by which you could theoretically edit a chicken into turning into a T-Rex are kind of there. The question is, like, how do you actually get them to do that experiment? Um, and that's a really interesting scientific question, well, I mean, actually. I mean, you know, yeah. it's long, as has long been established in science, you can't, uh, you can't make a T-Rex without breaking a few chickens. Exactly, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Again, from the opening lines of my grant application. <laughs> uh, I don't know why the National Institute of Health doesn't answer my calls. Um, so, yeah, anyway. So, so Dave, you're, you're not only a, a world-class scientist, you're also... A uh, a father of two young boys. And That's right. I imagine that two. <laughs> I imagine that uh, that uh, their enthusiasm for dinosaurs is is different, both different qualitatively from your enthusiasm <laughs> for for dinosaurs. Uh, I mean, what what, what you know, none, none of us has has young sons and I feel like young sons are the the perfect uh uh audience for, you know, dinosaur stuff. Um so what uh what do you think? I mean, I don't know what do what do they think of dinosaurs and like what do what do they identify with outside of the uh outside of the fascinating uh, you know, scientific disquisitions that you must regale with them with every night at bedtime. Right. right. So I should say, I, you know, I, I've hung out with them and I've hung out with their friends. Now, I, I have observed no difference in enthusiasm between young sons and young daughters. So, oh, fair so there, there may be a split later on, but um, certainly by age six, they're all fully on board with the dinosaur plan. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think for them, it's still really visceral, you know? I mean, the, Freddie is obsessed with, with getting facts about dinosaurs, but I think it's less about understanding them and more just they just, just totally obsessed um, and just, just you know, in, in the way that, like, you know, many uh, sort of pudgy white suburbanites like myself were obsessed with Led Zeppelin. You know, you hear Stairway once and you just want to hear every <laughs> Led Zeppelin song ever, you know? You can tolerate Do Your Maker because you heard Stairway recently. Um, and, and, um, and so for Freddie, it's just like, holy crap, there, there was a time um, on the Earth's history where, you know, something the length of two school buses and with teeth that are each the size of a fully ripe banana were just like walking around hungry looking for lunch. Like that was just a thing you would see on Earth. Um, 
So, you know, I, I would tell him things like, hey, you know, actually T-Rexes uh, never never once ate a stegosaurus. That that couldn't happen because the stegosauri had all died by the time the T-Rexes were on Earth. And then that's met with sort of blank blinking. And then Freddie would be like, but that would be so awesome. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean... I, yeah, I think Freddie feels about it much the way much of this conversation is just like, wouldn't it be awesome if we just turn a chicken into a T-Rex? That'd be huge. So, so how much, from your perspective, Dave, what this reminds me of is cars in a similar okay. manner. And I would say that how, how much of this, like the, how much the, 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 the movie or or the vehicle class? No, the band. No, uh, <laughs> no, the uh, the cars. No, it's uh, no counting blue cars. The song. No, it's. Yeah. Um, the, Kars, idea, the, the, the city in Turkey on which the Orhan Paramukas novel is named. That um, certain that certain sort of classified certain bodies of knowledge are classified in ways that are attractive for understanding and in a sort of systematic way. Uh, yeah. And I feel like dinosaurs kind of might be like that. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of tossing this out there as an idea that that the, the way the dinosaur names work, right, where it's this yeah. saurus or that yeah, yeah. dantus or whatever. Uh, do you do you see that phenomenon at work? I mean, kind of. I feel like Freddie's Freddie's too young for that still, and Isaac's definitely too okay. young um, to kind of get at that level where he's trying to like really catch you know, the sort of sports statistics uh, approach to like to getting into something. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I like baseball because it has all of these. There's RBIs yeah. and there's bunts and you know, yeah, yeah. flies and all this other stuff. And batting averages, like like the idea that a batting average might be a more attractive statistic for sports enthusiasts because it is kind of counterintuitively difficult to figure out. Uh, yeah, exactly. It, like, it, exactly. Yeah, it isn't exactly what it says it is, and that makes it more interesting, like quarterback rating or something. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, the sort of person who gets into it because he's like, well, you know, true, that might be that might be his RBI, but you know, what would be what would that be against a left-handed pitcher? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. So, yeah. No, th- neither of them are at that point yet, <laughs> and I feel like the kids who really get into that point, like they would actually maybe make you know pretty good paleontologists. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, what, what did you, what I mean, did you think I gotta about say, one, one of the thing, one of the things that really blows my mind about about dinosaurs in general is, um, you know, oftentimes we have this picture of like herbivores, kind of sitting around munching on some fruit or some flowers, and that's actually a thing that never happened. Like in the history of the Earth, no dinosaur ever ate an apple or like a flower, uh, because the the split between the gymnosperm lineage, the the evergreen trees, and the angiosperm lineage, the things that make most of the fruits uh, that we eat and the vegetables that we eat didn't happen until after the death of the dinosaurs. So, so near there was a triceratops that ate a zucchini, um, which makes me sad. Wait, so what, what did they eat instead, though? Like branches? I, it like, must have been you know, like yeah, succulent ferns. Um, you know, there's plenty of edible evergreens, and there were probably many, many more uh, back then too. I mean, at the at the were these were these ferns uh, in some sort of um, valley or canyon or gully? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering whether no. there was going to be a dinosaur. <laughs> was a dinosaur ever between two ferns? Be- be- Between two ferns? Yeah, yeah, uh, surely. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, that's you know, scientifically, that's referred to as sort of an awkward situation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> played out for comedic effect. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, yes. Yes, that happened all the time. Ferns. They, ferns. they, uh, they ate ferns. Yeah. I mean, something like 90% of all species of life died off with the dinosaurs. 
and only a small fraction of that um, were the dinosaurs themselves. Mm. So, so again, you know, respect for the crocodile would survive that shit. Yeah, you said that there was no container that could hold on to DNA for 65 million years, and I was going to say there is one, and it's shaped like a crocodile. Yeah, yeah. And, and just, just do not mess with it, okay? It's been through a lot, and it's really not happy about it. It turns so out that crocodile sex is the only thing that can carry DNA for 65 million years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, and as we learned the other day, crocodiles enjoy marshmallows. That's alligators enjoy marshmallows. Crocodiles, I don't know. So I would be oh, sure. alligators oh. enjoy marshmallows. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Crocodiles in, enjoy uh, hunting the most dangerous game. Yeah. Hey, Dave, I got another question for you. Um, you know, our, <laughs> our generation had Jurassic Park growing up, and that inspired a whole yeah. sense of wonder and scientific discovery and this, that, the other. Uh, what what's new these days that's going to inspire the next generation? Like in, in the world of science fiction? Yeah. Um, I mean, Teen Titans Go, I want to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Pocoyo, for sure. Um, see, I don't know. I mean, the, you know, every, every, and this is probably why I've fallen off OTI. I, I love talking to you guys. The problem is I don't know anything about pop culture anymore because <laughs> it all has to be sort of sanitized for, uh, for a six-year-old. Well, yeah. Or consumed um, at 2 a.m. when I'm cleaning said six-year-old's dishes. Mm. Oh, here's um, a pop culture not... update for you, uh, Dave, that they are still making Jurassic yep. Park movies. Uh, yes. Those are, I, I guess, inspiring. Um, I don't know, maybe. What is it? The, the major innovation of the last one is that like, they are genetically, further genetically engineering, they're already genetically engineered monsters for maximizing corporate profit. So um, that, oh, cool. I think, will, will, will inspire the next generation. Nice, Can't it's wait. like biopharmaceuticals, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess you know, long-term corporate profitability. I mean, what else, what other inspiration do you need for kids these days, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, to the scientists of tomorrow have all been watching Attack on Titans, so everybody better <laughs> better invest in masonry stocks and grappling hook companies. <laughs> so. uh, I want to say The Walking Dead, you know, that's probably... Uh, is that even still a thing? God, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that It's a documentary, right? Yeah, basically, right? So. <laughs> morally and if not actually <laughs> physically well uh dave thanks very much for coming on overthinking and talking talking with us buddy it's always just it's always wonderful to hear your voice and i'm glad you could take the time oh likewise guys it was it was a real delight talking to you all so thank you so much and i hope it made any sense at all you know what i didn't realize until Dave pronounced this word. I, I have always said paleontologist, and I always thought that like paleont was the like the root and just ologist meant meant scientist or sort of one who studies, one who does the uh, uh, the logos of, but it's uh, um, that's that's not quite right. It's pale ontologist right and so it's it's the the oh. existence of very old things um that uh you know that that their their sort of existence and and thinking about it as being related to the philosophical discipline of ontology is is sort of is sort of amusing right like if a dinosaur falls in the woods and no one hears it does it really make a, a roaring sound um you know, I don't know the the yeah. the yeah does does it? I don't know. Let's 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 investigate the question. Let's create some genetically that- near and dinosaurs and make an experiment and actually find out. Right. 
But then you would be, if you're a paleontologist, you have to be careful to consult a paleo consequentialist in order <laughs> to understand that just because you could doesn't necessarily mean that you should. Although it's the other way around, right? So which is concerned with which? Of the paleontologist and the paleoconsequentialist, which one is the one that is concerned with whether or not you could and which one is concerned with whether or not you should? Well, that would be a, a paleoethicist, 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 paleoethicist. OK, OK, got it. Got it. I like it. <laughs> uh, a paleosemiotologist, I guess I, it's hard to come up with the compound words for it, uh, but that would be the one who determines what the dinosaur names mean, man. I mean, over the last like, 20 years, really. like uh, the field has advanced so much that we can't just get a regular old chaos mathematician to do this for us. We now we have to have a paleo paleoethicist. Okay, fine. I suppose. We can, I, like I, I suppose academia is uh, fracturing into more specificity and specialization. So let's roll. Yes, you know you you know you never hear about any chaos math. You know you don't really ever hear about that anymore. I wonder what happened. Are fractals still a thing? Well, big data is a thing now, right? Well, right. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's probably all become computational. It's all like machine learning, right? And the, the, I guess the math behind machine learning, well, some of the math behind, you know, so-called chaos theory is not all that uh, – all that advanced in individual calculation, right? It's just that there's a whole lot of calculations being done really, really fast. I, I guess I'm not a, a mathematician. We want to find somebody more of a math expert, but I think it's it's interesting to consider the context of something like big data and machine learning, how quickly people will come to assume that there is an ontology to it, that, that, the, that these are conclusions that are being drawn for a purpose and stop seeing the operations, you know, the algorithmic operations of uh, many, many, many small changes. Uh, thinking that, oh, you know, the, the AI wants this as opposed to the AI is, is you know, testing and testing and testing and iterating and iterating and iterating. And this just happens to be the result. I think it's similar in that in that regard that people people it's this. There's a there's a smartness. But there's there's a, a way in which the smartness is less complete than it appears, I think. Yeah, the, the way that the way that people talk about evolution suffers from a similar kind of fallacy, right? Like yeah. that ev evolution selected for this, that or the other rather than there there were a whole bunch of random mutations. And, you know, the ones that suited the organism to survive based on whatever selective pressure was being applied by the environment, like the that those were the or organisms that that survived because they would because they were yeah. better suited and that's like that's not a that's not an ontological process and there's no like there's no conscious process of selection at any point in that yeah if there was if 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 evolution was onto, were ontological and normative and and selected for things with a certain agency of the two Michael Crichton properties in question, I don't think there would be a way that we ended up with both a Jurassic Park reboot and a Westworld reboot happening at the same time. I think it would really have to be one or the other. It's just proof that the world operates in crazy random ways in some respects. Yeah, Westworld. I mean, Westworld just just ended. We're recording this before the the finale has aired, so we can't actually comment on the finale. I don't know if you guys watch Westworld, but I mean, I'm I'm surprised that it's not. I, it's uh, Jurassic World and and Westworld. I mean, Michael Crichton really had one idea, right? Which is that people want to go to theme parks where they get to do dangerous things, consequence free. Actually, it's interesting. If we're really going to go down the Michael Crichton rabbit hole here. Coco the gorilla just died. 
Oh, yeah, I saw yeah. that. Oh, you're talking about the book. Uh, was that the inspiration for the book Congo? I believe so, right? Because it's largely yeah. concerns a, a gorilla who's able to communicate with humans through sign language. And they, they need to find rare blue diamonds that are used in high-tech applications in the eponymous five-letter place that is Congo. Um, and, and is it uh, – yeah, so – Zaire, right? Now, modern-day Zaire, isn't it? Or is it now – that it it's was not Zaire. Zaire it's not it was Zaire. Belgian. It was Belgian Congo when it was colonized, and then it was Zaire. But that it's did not. It's the Democratic so well. Republic of the Congo right now. Got it. It's the name of the country. But there is also a different country called Congo, which is uh, different. Oh. Um, R.I.P. Coco. She um, is now in the eternal happy place with Harambe, the other famous dead gorilla. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't I, resist. No, no, no. Of course. More... <laughs> if, if this is not a safe space for making those type of jokes, then then what is? Yeah, fair enough. So, but this, I think this raises an interesting idea. Thinking about dinosaurs, and of course, we just had a great conversation about dinosaurs, and thinking about Crichton, and thinking about Coco, and, and Westworld, there's this idea of learning from the past that seems kind of interesting. And in particular, the idea that you could learn from the animals of the past, that there is something about animals that precede humans or seem in some way more primordial than humans. Because, of course, Coco the gorilla did not precede humans. She was contemporary with humans. Uh, But uh, that that but the idea that you could go to a gorilla for some sort of wisdom that you can't get from a human being. Because the gorilla, I would, I would intuit that there is an assumption in there that the gorilla's proximity to sort of an earlier and preceding air idea of nature lends it a certain wisdom that we've lost, which seems like it would be tied to European ideas of like the lost classical tradition, right? Like the idea of like, oh, our at one point everybody knew stuff and was awesome, and then there was huge collapse and we lost everything, and now we've we've become awesome again and maybe more awesome than we ever were, but we feel in the back of our minds somewhere that we lost whatever was awesome in the first place. And I, I, it's interesting to think of if you see that as sort of the pattern, and I'm curious to hear from people who are listeners who aren't uh, from a sort of Western tradition kind of cultural mindset, whether this is also a thing. Like, right, it's like, is it a thing that that the very, very old that has been veiled by time is believed to be the very, very wise or the very, very knowledgeable? Uh, Because I feel like with both Coco the Gorilla and with dinosaurs and to somewhat an extent cowboys, right, like uh, there's some sort of meme in the culture uh, and memes find a way, people. Memes find a way that that, uh, that these things that are older know better, and that we should we look to them with a desire to know what they know. That that we somehow don't something don't have. Like, what would you learn from a T Rex? I guess is kind of the question. Right. Yeah. The how to how to manipulate objects with the its, its tiny arms. It's yeah. tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny. I think arms. that would be the T Rex would be bad at that. and want to learn about that from you because your arms are just as tiny as the T Rex arms. You're much better at manipulating things. So what what you're talking about in terms of the drive to learn stuff from old things? I mean, uh, I, I think that's uh, that is definitely a thing. It's definitely a phenomenon, right? It's why we fetishize uh, folk arts, um, artisanal artisan excuse me artisanal crafts. Um, right, hand stitched right, right. Italian leather from artisanal methods passed down from hundreds of, of years, so on and so forth. I think that's very much spot on. Um, the question is, uh, what do we learn from dinosaurs in this kind of way? I think it's like this: uh, we learn from them how to terrorize other human beings, how to brutally be a master of your environment um, in a way, in, in, especially in an environment that it's like strange and you're really not supposed to be there. 
Um, that's my take on what we learned from dinosaurs. So, so you think of a dinosaur in a dinosaur setting as strange. Uh, I was thinking more, no, more that like, you know, because dinosaurs have been, in the context of Jurassic Park movies, they've been brought back to an environment where they don't really belong. Like, you know, okay. the, 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 the 21st century, that is to say. Because as you're saying, I wonder if it isn't even a little bit different in that we see in the dinosaur, and now I feel like I'm talking like a villain from a late, from a Jurassic Park movie that's going to come out, a Jurassic World movie in the future. We see in the dinosaur an honesty of purpose that we ourselves cannot achieve in our setting, but in the dinosaur's setting, this sort of pre-lapsarian idea. So, like, so lapsarian being the idea of like, you know, when Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, the humanity got original sin, and it's some point in the past humanity was perfect and now humanity screwed up and this notion this sort of garden of eden narrative plays into a lot of different uh a lot of different uh discourses one of them is the discourse around capitalism where there's this similar religious idea or quasi-religious idea that everything was great and then capitalism came along and suddenly everything became evil and everything that's been tainted by capitalism is evil right as opposed to the idea that like Economic exchanges happened over the course of time in many different ways, and good and bad things have happened in various respects in many different systems. And there's no like one moment of departure in which the world like fundamentally changes and becomes evil, uh, um, unless you know you necessarily think maybe there was, maybe there is a thing like the Garden of Eden that happens to people as they come to know things. But the extinction event of the dinosaurs. It creates, even though, of course, it didn't happen maybe instantly, although it might have happened pretty quickly if, if the, you know, the asteroid impact was really bad enough. But uh, but there's a point at which before the, the extinction, it is normal for there to be dinosaurs in the world. And then after it, it is like the world does not admit to allow to there to be dinosaurs in it anymore. And the dinosaurs coming back brings into the current day the things about the dinosaurs that maybe we recognize about ourselves to some degree or at least about nature uh maybe i don't know it, that's that's the question i guess i guess that's the the follow-up question is do you identify with the dinosaurs we talked about whether we like them we talk about kids and liking them we talk about reasons you may like them but do you see yourself in the dinosaur or do you see the dinosaur as something that's strange I think the answer to that question might be different at different stages in your life, right? Like, as as a child, I had plastic dinosaur toys, and I would kind of smash them against each other. I don't suppose it was any particular of any particular importance that they were dinosaurs all my plastic toys i smashed against each other right and like it's the 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 plastic toys are sort of avatars for for the self you know and and i guess the the simplistic psychological explanation would be that it's a power fantasy it's a it's an omnipotent sort of psychological defense or it's something about anxiety about your relative powerlessness being worked out in play where you sort of imagine yourself to be um, imagine yourself to be a dinosaur, to be the king of the jungle. I mean, it's not jungle, or it's maybe it is jungle. Prime the 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 Jurassic Park, right? And uh, that that's uh, you know that that's so much better. It's so much better to right. be a dinosaur than it is to be a kid. Uh, now, I I think I feel I would feel very menaced by dinosaurs. <laughs> the idea of dinosaurs like would be very threatening and and difficult for me to um to uh get around and like dinosaurs now are kind of metaphors for natural forces or for you know other things that don't um uh you know that 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 don't um kind of map neatly onto my idea 
onto my idea about myself. There was interest. I mean, it was interesting to, uh, you know, I don't know. I, what Mark said was interesting about the, the, um, uh, what Mark said was interesting about the, you know, being the, the king of the jungle. I guess we all want to be the king of the king of the jungle a, a little bit. And so in that sense, like the, di- the dinosaurs are aspirational or kind of fantastical in a, in a way that, you know, helps somehow. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it reminds me when I've played with some, with kids that have played with dinosaur toys, one thing that I tend to get a fair amount of success in terms of, you know, the kid having a fun time is introducing something that the dinosaurs do other than just hit each other. And there seems to be like, so, you know, the dinosaurs can dance, you know, like, oh, no, it's it's dance time or the dinosaurs can. I think at one point recently I was playing with a, a kid and um, a, a young, maybe a three year old, three year old. And uh, I had the dinosaurs sumo wrestle each other but in order to do that they had to do the ritual throwing of the salt into the middle of the ring right and it was like little plastic toy being like i gotta throw the salt i gotta throw the salt and we're purifying the ring so we can have the match and, the, and i'm sure the kid didn't understand what's happening but was delighted by it uh-huh. and and i wonder if part of the play is like what can i be or do other than aggressive or passive maybe as in like i can i i can be loud or quiet i can be Fierce or, or you know, pal, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Calm. Fierce or calm, right? Mm-hmm. I can uh, I can be, like, vicious or I can be, uh, you know, just very reserved. And uh, it's interesting to think that, like, well, you can introduce new ideas. You could be other things. You could be friends. You could be creative. You know, you can engage the world in different ways. And that seems like kind of a new idea. Sounds like, so, sounds like yeah. crazy talk. Sounds like uh, crazy talk to me, Pete. I, I don't believe in any of those things. <laughs> Fair enough. You, you're all. Are you a carnivore or an herbivore? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> on the on the paleo diet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know, as they as they say, when I was a child, I I played as a child. I you know uh, thought as a child. I smashed dinosaurs together as a child. When I became a man, I made multi million dollar franchises about childish things. <laughs> All right, I think that's all the time we have to the, <laughs> for the Overthinking It podcast today. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Mark and Pete for uh, participating. And thanks very much to our special guest, Dave Schechner, for uh, enjoying uh, a long dino chat with us. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking podcasts. Who knows? We may even go see a movie. No promises. But until then, you can always find us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. You see signal and everything. All right, we got uh, signal. We get signal. That's a two thousand throwback for you guys. <laughs> I actually cited launch all zig today on Facebook because that's how deep the cuts are getting. <laughs> hey, do you guys have stairs in your house? <laughs> Go stand by the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here, yeah, let's do this. Here we, uh, here we go.